yeah, we could pick apart the Bible all day and why various... There's over 90,000 denominations in the United States alone because people don't agree about like what these what these words mean for us 2,000 years later in a totally different context. But I think like it's actually not that hard to love. It's really not that complicated to look at somebody and say, what's leading to flourishing? What's leading to health? What allows them to truly thrive and to uh, be fully alive in the way that God intended? And then to listen to them and believe them when they tell us what that is. It's not that hard. It's not that complicated. So I think, um, you know, my encouragement for for people that are in that place feeling torn is to just take a step back and to, like, use a, use a little common sense. Like, there's a lot of denominations that will take into account scripture, yes, but also history and also science and also um, just general wisdom. And I think that that we, you know, evangelicals could stand to just like take a step back and, and bring a little wisdom to to this conversation um, and get out of the weeds of sort of the, the, the Bible verses. That if she fell in, she could fall out. I wonder why a love so deep would have me begging for mercy. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and we are back this week with part two of the series on LGBTQ community and the church. Uh, this week, I welcome Julie Rogers. Julie just re- released her memoir titled Out Love. It's a, a take two. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and this week is part two of the series I've been doing on the LGBTQ community and the church. This week, I welcome Julie Rogers. Julie just released her memoir. It's titled Out Love. It's about her coming-of-age experience at the center of the debate between evangelicals and the LGBTQ community. Her story is also featured on the new Netflix documentary Pray Away about former leaders and survivors of the movement to pray the gay away, a.k.a. conversion therapy. Julie currently serves as a teaching fellow at the Faith and Justice Network, a nine-month educational journey for people looking for a more expansive vision of Christian spirituality and ministry. Julie's story is both heartbreaking, but one filled with hope. There is certainly no way to cover her story or this topic in a way that could possibly do it justice in just two short episodes. Nor was this my intent. There are so many stories like these out there waiting to be heard. My hope is that you'll approach topics like these with maybe a little more love and humility. And that as we argue over right and wrong and this lofty goal of absolute truth and certainty, real people are hurting and in some cases even dying. Our brothers and sisters need us and they need us to do better and to be better. Thanks as always for listening. You can find everything you need at www.thedeconstructionist.com. And without further ado, Julie freaking Rogers. Well, 
Well, Julie Rogers, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show today and being on the Deconstructionist podcast. Oh, thanks so much, John. It's really great to be here to chat with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I got a copy of your book. So you've got this new book out called Out Love, A Queer Christian Survival Story. And um, I plowed through it. it. First of all, you're an incredible writer. But second of all, your story is is pretty unique uh, in terms of it's not just your uh, your typical uh, kind of coming of age story where you kind of, uh, you know, kind of came out and that sort of thing. It's way more complicated than that. But uh, let's start at the beginning, though. Uh, when you were a kid and, and growing up, um, you know, how were you raised? What was your childhood like? Yeah, so I grew up in a little town called Tomball, Texas, outside of Houston. And I I was in a, a really conservative Christian family. My mom, like, homeschooled me all the way to high school to keep me away from the gays and science teachers. And it was, in many ways, like... Uh, it was a it was a really kind and loving community, you know. There's all the all the potlucks at the local Baptist church, and then eventually Bible churches, which are just like Baptist churches in Texas, and um, just a, a sort of yeah, like I, I I and I actually really loved Jesus. Like as much as it was sort of this sheltered upbringing of like homeschool, the gays are bad. Um, I was really moved by the story of. Like the, the God like loved the whole world and that God came to be with me in in the form of Jesus and and that that Jesus loved people who were different, people who were sort of like pushed out to the edges of their communities. And I just really had this sense that like if Jesus had lived in my neighborhood, Jesus would have been my friend. So from a very young age, it was, you know, there was this like fundamentalism, but you don't know what you don't know. So I was just like, okay, I think this is, this is normal. Um, and also this warmth of like feeling the love of my parents and family and broader community and, and the love of God, honestly, from a very young age. Yeah. So talk about like, so when you're a kid, you talk about in the book, uh, starting to feel these, these same sex attraction, uh, these feelings, and obviously kind of growing up in that more fundamentalist, uh, conservative household, you know, that's, that's a no, no, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a big time sin, you know, in, in that world. So, you know, talk about how you, you know, the kind of the conflicted feelings you started to have. Cause obviously the other part of that too is, is, uh, admitting that out loud to your, to your family and friends. And as we know, everybody reacts kind of differently. So talk about first, I guess, you know, kind of the mixed feelings you had. And then, you know, when you eventually did come out, you know, to friends and family, you know, what was the reaction there? My initial, my initial response to the feelings themselves was one, a sense of shame because I, my mom had been really fixated on LGBT people. Like she would always be pointing out like gays wherever we were. And she would be like, you know, homosexuality is the worst sin because it's a sin that can't be forgiven. Uh, it's like it's like a lifestyle people choose rather than like one moment of sin from which somebody could repent, like murder. And so I was like, oh, no, this is really, really bad. And at the same time, I also felt like God loved me and I didn't I didn't necessarily feel any sense of urgency to like do anything about it. Like I didn't feel like I needed to go make out with girls or change or anything at all. I just kind of thought like that I kind of like kept it under wraps for, for a while. And I was also like, I'm discovering this at like, I'm homeschooled, right? Like I'm at 
the only kids I know are from like youth group. I'm discovering this at like middle school sleepovers uh, when like we would be reading Bible verses to each other and I would like trace the outline of Cassie's lips or something. And it was like uh, just such a like sheltered <laughs> sort of like homeschooler sexual awakening. Um, by the time I was like 16 years old, I was a junior in high school. I was feeling deeply conflicted about the fact that I was starting to have like sort of like serious crushes on friends and, and, you know, kind of like really intense female friendships that were just like probably some way of trying to express my sexual longings. And, um, my mom was really like feeling suspicious and, and sort of like digging into my stuff. And so eventually I, I sort of felt torn between, you know, like I was hiding something. And so I came out to my mom on Valentine's Day of my junior year in high school. And she, you know, both of my parents, my mom and my dad, both expressed like a lot of love for me. And there was this real clear sense that they they love me. I think like all parents, they parents love their kids and they want to figure out like what the, the kindest response is to something that feels so big and scary, like your Christian homeschool kid being gay. So my mom got online and uh, the next week pulled me out of school early uh, to go meet with a minister named Ricky Shillette, who was at First Baptist Church in Arlington, Texas. By this point, we were in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And he he's now the executive director of an organization called Living Hope Ministries, which was a member ministry of Exodus International at the time, uh, the largest organization in the world that promoted hope for healing from uh, same-sex attractions. So I wanted to meet with this guy, Ricky. I didn't really want to change. I didn't see any reason to change. Like, I just really wanted everybody else in my life to be okay with me. But I also knew that I had two more years in my parents' home, and things felt really chaotic, and I'm such a peacemaker. I really wanted, like, I wanted to please God. I wanted to be good. I wanted my parents to be proud of me. And so... It became clear sort of over the course of, of the following weeks and months that the only way to sort of like maintain any sense of harmony in my home was to continue this path of, of conversion therapy and to try to become straight. Yeah. Talk, talk about that a little bit, because it seems to me in the book, like it, initially you kind of resist it. You're like, this is a bunch of nonsense. And because to be clear, Ricky, Pastor Ricky, not a therapist, right? Like, right. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so, so I think what right. a lot of people don't realize, but like, oh yeah. So, but you kind of give in eventually, right? Yeah, I I think what a lot of people don't realize is that like the main place conversion therapy is happening is in like these nonprofit sort of ministry settings. And it's like there people like Ricky are using these reparative therapy sort of like pseudo psychology like that's been widely discredited by every major medical association in the country they're using those to sort of inform the way that they mentor and do pastoral counseling with like a kid like me and so uh yeah not a licensed professional um nevertheless meeting with me weekly and sort of like going through trying to sift through my childhood baggage to discover root causes as to why i was gay and um you know, I think it there was a sense in which I I thought it was 
I, like, I didn't know science, right? Like, I didn't know, I didn't know anything else. And so when Ricky sort of like drew out this long explanation of why I, why I was gay and why I felt the way I did and sort of like offered up a narrative about how I could be good and acceptable uh, in my community, there was no reason for me not to believe it. And it was a person like an older charismatic leader who paid a lot of attention to me and was interested in my crushes and my dreams for the future and like what I was going through. And so there was a way in which I felt a sense of like being seen and finding belonging that was that was really great until uh, years later when I realized that none of it worked and that it was all like uh and yeah, I, I wasn't able to see the negative consequences of it for several years. It, it, what's interesting in the book too is that like it, it almost becomes like this uh, psychological connection, uh, not just to Ricky, but but kind of that that group in general. Where uh, you know throughout your story, you kind of go back and forth between saying like saying to yourself, uh, "I don't think this is a. I don't think this is working." But you know, obviously later on, you 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 start to realize just how damaging it is. But but like there's sort of a dependency on it a little bit. So how much of that was kind of, you know, again, kind of goes back to just trying to to please your parents? Because it seems like a lot of it is just because your mom, you know, clearly throughout the story, to, you know, was taking it pretty hard. And, yeah. and obviously you love her dearly and, and want to make her happy. So how much of that has to do with just trying to, uh, to you know, live up to your parents' expectations, I guess? I mean, I would say it was almost entirely that if my if my family had said, you know, Julie, we love you no matter what. We accept you no matter what. Uh, we're here to sort of just like. Bear witness to your unfolding journey and to walk with you. Um, there's no way I would have gone through these like extreme steps of like you know, support group meeting every Thursday night and healing prayer group every Tuesday night and meeting with Ricky for pastoral counseling on a weekly basis. And I lived in their recovery house, the, the Hope House, for a while. I spent all, like, every single summer I was at Exodus International Conferences for, like, 10 years. There's You're just not that motivated to do something that is actively, like, not working um, unless they're, unless you fear, like, a deep, sense of loss on the other side of it. And it was just, it was the only world I'd ever known. I just couldn't imagine a life without, without my family. I couldn't imagine like, what was I going to do? Like pack up my backpack and show up at the LGBT resource center on the one gay strip in downtown Dallas. Like it just, it felt like I had no options. And uh, so, yeah, I really threw myself into the, to this one. Yeah. And you make, you may, you have this poignant moment in the book where you talk about the fact, cause you just, you just mentioned the fact that it was even called a recovery center as if you're dealing with some sort of drug addiction, you know, and you, you make mention of that, the fact that it is treated kind of, uh, you know, in the same way, like it's some sort of like mental disease or addiction or something that you can just get over, you know, if only you have the right help and the right resources. Yeah. It's interesting. Like most there's a, there's a lot of uh, large evangelical like mega churches. I'm thinking of a church called Watermark in Texas right now that has like a celebrate recovery program, and many it's a really popular program. It's sort of like a 12 step type program that's Christianized for evangelical ministries. And in addition to like addictions and 
you know, like recovering from devastating grief and loss and things, there's a uh, same sex attraction is usually one of the groups in there where they're essentially doing the same, using these same sort of like techniques that people are using in conversion therapy. And they liken it to Ricky would always liken it to an addiction. And it was just like, uh, they would sort of quote stats from like Alcoholics Anonymous and say, you know, X number of people return to, to drinking. Um, so we should expect that only a small number of you all are going to find healing and persist. Like wide is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the path that leads to life. And, um, it was, it's very much the same thing in, in their minds. The other component too, that I thought was that, that I thought was interesting. And, and I've noticed this before is just this fixation on the sexual component of it. Like it's some sort of sexual depravity when clearly, you know, sex is an important part of a relationship, but that's not the entire thing. You know, they're, they're leaving out the whole, you know, love part. <laughs> and so like, yeah, it, it seems like they're, they're just, again, it kind of goes back to that whole purity culture thing. Right. Totally. Yeah. I mean, we would sit around in a circle every week and basically go around and talk about like, did we hook up that week? If so, what did we do? Why did we do it? How many times did we masturbate that week? Did we look at porn? Like you would just basically go around each week and like rate your week based on your sexual scorecard. And it, it really led to this obsessive preoccupation with with not having sex and not doing gay sexual acts to the point where like that, then it it almost like, um, like exacerbated our sense of longing because we're just, that level of suppression leads to like a really unhealthy sense of, um, being fragmented and like, I would see a lot of friends suppress, 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 and then binge. Um, it was just, yeah, it was really, the really devastating consequences. Yeah. One of the, I think one of the heartbreaking moments in your story is where you talk about just the result of the suppression and how it kind of manifested in your life, especially in your teenage years where you start to burn yourself. And then you tell these other stories uh, about some of your friends that you met, you know, in these groups who would disappear for a time and, and became drug addicts even, and so talk about just the psychological impact of this sort of suppressive kind of, um, I don't even want to call it therapy, but this, this attempt to kind of, you know, change one's sexuality. It was really, it was what moved me and what opened my eyes to uh, how damaging it was. I had several friends then that were that, from Living Hope that were just like these sweetie pies that went to Christian college with me. And they were healthy, young, cute, attractive, articulate guys who would devote themselves to the program and sort of be like, deny themselves, deny themselves, deny themselves, deny themselves. And then they would just like lose it and go like binge for a weekend with like anonymous sex. And that would be where they, uh, quite a few of them ended up during those times, like being offered some sort of drug, like meth or something and getting hooked immediately because it was like, they just felt like they were in this constant cycle of like, um, repentance, repentance, self-loathing, hating themselves, feeling such shame. And then they would go binge and feel like 
you know, for a moment, this sort of thrill and feel like wanted and feel like confident and, you know, but it was in such, such unhealthy sort of ways. And, um, so quite a few of them, um, ended up in these fairly long addictions that, uh, you know, most of us were self-harming. Many of us had eating disorders. Like there was interesting, just the extent to which we took it out on our bodies specifically. And, over time, I began to see that the people who were able to just come out in their religious communities and date out in the open and, like, have the input of their community, like, and the support of their community, like, those people were just so much healthier. And I was like, I don't know what to do with, like, the Bible and theology and, like, what whatever the Apostle Paul is talking about, but I do know that, like, Jesus came so that we would have life. And people in these affirming communities, queer people in affirming communities are infinitely healthier, healthier than those of us that were in uh, conservative communities trying so desperately to, to change. Some days I am torn between if Judas is more you than me, the risen king that seems to speak to anyone but me. Forgive me. Yeah, and one one of the things that that it, it that struck me in the book, I guess, is the fact that not only are you dealing with kind of this self, kind of the shame, you know, this cycle of shame and and kind of personal pressure, you know, that you're under, but but on top of that, you also have the pressure from folks around you, you know, that you would hope would be uh, supportive, but not not always. You know, I have a lot of friends who, when they came out to their parents one parent or both parents, you know, weren't, weren't real receptive to it. And you had a hard time with your mom. Like you tell the story about when she had a heart attack and, you know, you're legitimately sad for the pain that she's in. And she says, it's not nothing compared to the pain that you've put me in. And as well-intentioned as she is, cause you know, in her mind, she's obviously trying to save her daughter. Um, gosh, like I, I can't imagine the immense amount of pressure and you're still, and, and like a lot of the stories of the other people that you tell in the, in the book, still a kid. You're still really a kid. You know, you're, you're what in your early twenties, I think at this point. Yeah, definitely early twenties. And, uh, at that point, at least at living hope, the largest sort of group was the youth group and they would take people as young as 15 years old. And, um, and then the youth group went up to like 26. And so we're still, you know, our brains are still growing until we're like 26 years old. So we're just going through all these uh, key, key developmental years. And we're, we're doing that in a community that's teaching us like totally fake science, upside down views of just the world. And it was sort of just this parallel universe where like, we, we were told that like, um, you know, gay people were like, they were sort of this, disgusting, depraved, uh, sex crazed, you know, debaucherous group of people and those who left the ministry and sort of accepted their, accepted themselves, uh, that they were, you know, had gone to the dark side and, um, we're just, we're kids. Right. And we're, we're still, most of us are still like financially dependent on our parents and, just have no sense of, um, you know, it's, it's, 
yeah, it's just this upside down universe where you don't, you're told not to trust your, your feelings. You're told not to trust yourself. Like the heart is deceitful above all things. You know, the flesh is like wicked. And so the only things that you're taught to trust are the Bible, but it's like there, these these Christian leaders are pastors' interpretations of the Bible. And so it just ends up being this really cultish experience because uh, the only people that you're allowed to trust in these environments are like the men in charge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. Have we talked about uh, that on this podcast many times uh, <laughs> in regards to a lot of different issues? But, um, but yeah, so... One of the other really powerful moments in the book is where you, where you you come to this realization that the the people who are in your life uh, or in your circle at that point you don't even know their last names and your entire life kind of revolves around just trying your best not to be gay and this happens right around the time before you you move to Dallas where you start to make friends kind of outside of that group and realize that there are different kind of perspectives is that sort of when the the bubble started to crack a little bit for you. Definitely. When I started seeing that there are a lot of different ways to interpret scripture and that there are a lot of different ways of practicing one's faith that all like lead, like lead to good fruit and that many of them uh, seem to embody the way of Jesus and the spirit of Jesus and the fruit of the spirit. Like I was just starting to see like, wait, this doesn't add up because the people that are supposedly like bad and wrong are actually like kinder and more generous and more compassionate than some of the people in my community. What am I supposed to do with that? Cause they seem like real Christians. And, um, I started, that was at the same time I started running into some, a lot of these friends who several of them were homeless, uh, because they had gotten into addictive patterns when they were at living hope. And I was just like, gosh, like. I I can't participate in something that is going to wreak this kind of havoc on like beautiful human beings like these these guys that I just love and adore. I just can't participate in that anymore. So that was what sort of motivated me to start moving away from Living Hope and Exodus International. Uh, it was just challenging because I had been, you know, <laughs> Ricky asked me to give my ex-gay testimony when, for their donor banquet when I was 17 years old. So I was like, I don't really think I have an ex-gay testimony. And he was like, yeah, you do. He's like, I'll help you craft it, you know? So I ended up sort of like going and like giving my testimony uh, before Ricky spoke for most of my time that I was in the organization and then eventually started doing that with Exodus International. So it was it was hard because I wasn't like an authority. I was just like this person sharing a story that illustrated their theories but when you're on stage with a microphone, like you do have some kind of some kind of power. And so I felt one of the things that I think kept me around a little bit longer than I would have was I felt some responsibility to sort of like right some of the wrongs and to use my influence in those communities to try to 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 change them from within. Yeah. And what's interesting, too, is you talk about, you know, your work, you kind of became uh, kind of this uh, poster child for. Uh, the successful conversion back to to being straight, but you, while you're working for this for this ministry, you you meet this guy named Alan Chambers, uh, who kind of shares the same thought. Where like 
you're like, wait, nope, I'm pretty sure I'm definitely still gay, you know? And, and so there seems to be this kind of shift in thought process where they're like, okay, we can acknowledge that maybe perhaps the same sex attraction doesn't go away, but then they kind of shift to this, this new kind of idea where, well, now you just have to be celibate and deny yourself love and relationship and, and all the things that all the other straight people get to have. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So once I, once I sort of came out and said that I was still gay, um, I found that there, people would kind of let me stick around if I committed to like lifelong singleness and celibacy and continue to hold traditional views about marriage. Initially, I thought that was a step forward. And there are some ways in which I guess you know, it, it can be a more compassionate response to, to queer people than to, to tell us to change our orientation, which is impossible. Um, but I found over time that, like, the there was still such discomfort with me. Uh, you you see, and we could talk more about this, when I, especially when I go to work at Wheaton College and when I was speaking with, like, Q, um, the Q conference, that, like, there was so much policing from the people with power in those in those roles, and there was always a double standard and like um, people asking me like where I received accountability for chastity and things like that. That I just think like you're not they're not asking like straight employees these question, um, and it just it was there was definitely just this double standard in the sense of like they wanted a gay person to to tell other gay people they needed to be single and celibate, but they didn't want to hear like the ways that like any positive message uh, about queer people. The only message they were interested in hearing was like that this was a thorn in the flesh and this was a big struggle. And this was something that was like a, um, yeah, a source of like deep pain and anguish for me. Yeah. And, and, what I thought was really interesting too, and I, I love, by the way, I'm going to quote you to you uh, right now, oh. but there's this message in the book where you say, the more important question to me became, <laughs> yeah, I hope you're, I hope you're comfortable with this, but, um, but you say in the book, the more important question to me became, does this teaching lead to harm or healing? I didn't think Jesus would advocate for anything that harmed people, especially people who were pushed to the margins of the church and society. Ex-gay teaching clearly caused harm. Yeah. Yeah, and that should be enough. I so I I actually I think that you know I I, I remember when I was in more conservative Christian circles, uh, there would be people talk about like I don't I don't want to raise good kids, I don't want to raise good Christian kids, I want to raise warriors for Christ. And there was this sense of like it didn't goodness didn't matter. All that mattered was this perceived holiness. And I actually think that it should really like like mental health and people's overall well-being and the the fruit of teaching causing harm um should matter like i there was even the presbyterian church the, the pca pastors who recently passed a big thing saying that gay and same sex attracted people uh can't serve uh won't can't be ordained in the pca church they said this teaching is compassionate because it is biblical. And so by nature of it being biblical, it means it's compassionate. And like, there's just this unwillingness to look at like the research and statistics and the actual human lives and the cost of these teachings. They, they won't, 
they won't consider the possibility like like the Trevor Project stats show that uh, kids, teenagers who are subjected to conversion therapy are more than twice as likely to attempt suicide. Yet they still these leaders will still say um, it's compassionate and it's right because it's biblical. Um, and I just yeah, I think that that's. I think that we have to look at the the human cost of our teaching and allow ourselves to be moved by the humanity of of the people that that God so deeply loves that Jesus came to be with in the first place. Yeah. So talk a little bit about I, I would love to talk a little bit about anyway um, your kind of process of healing because I think that's an important part of your story and it seems to me that some of that healing starts or at least begins with. Uh, you start going to therapy, and one of the things that your therapist talks to you about are, you know, is uh, setting healthy boundaries, specifically with a couple individuals who are very, very important in your life, Ricky and and your mom. So, talk about the importance of boundary setting in terms of uh, being a thing that started the healing process. Yeah, my first therapist. So, I've had multiple therapists. Um, highly recommend. And my first therapist was just like you you have to, first of all, you are going to have to, you're going to find healing in relationships. Like you can't isolate any longer and you have to expand beyond just like Ricky, this like 50 year old man that is like basically your best and only friend. And you, you, I think I felt like it was kind of wrong to set boundaries with these authority figures in my life. Because um, I had just been so conditioned by these authoritarian structures that, like, uh, the submitting to God basically looked like submitting to them. But she sort of showed me the importance of beginning to trust myself, to begin to trust my own gut and intuition and spirit, and was just saying, like, the Holy Spirit is in you, and you can trust that if something doesn't quite feel right, like— it's probably not, it's probably not quite right. And you can just sort of like create the space for yourself to be able to figure these things out um, outside of the the massive pressure you feel from these big figures in your life. Yeah. So talk about a little bit about, um, so kind of in your story, you kind of, you mentioned uh, briefly, like you went to work as a chaplain for, for Wheaton College. And so your, your journey is really a progression. It's not as if you went from uh, kind of living in, in shame and, and kind of trying to suppress your, your sexuality uh, to all of a sudden being out and in a relationship and all that stuff. It was just, it was really a slow progression because there's a lot to unpack, you know, from your childhood uh, in that journey. So talk a little bit about, you know, some of the eye-opening things that you experienced at Wheaton because it was very much this on the surface, it seemed like kind of more conservative Christianity had made a move uh, to, to be affirming, but really not, not really, you know, they're, they're still kind of almost doing it uh, more for, for PR purposes really than anything. And you talk about that also with this group that you worked with called, I think it was called Q. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the Q conferences. I think so I think it was honestly an experiment. I think that they saw Exodus International shut down. They saw that the message of change was not necessarily working. And there were a growing number of openly gay people in more conservative Christian communities who were, were seeking to live a life of singleness and celibacy. So 
I think they they hired me at Wheaton as a bit of an experiment, hoping that I could sort of like straddle the line and be able to work with the sort of openly queer uh, students on campus who many of them were much more progressive and then also be palatable enough, like be able to sign their community covenant and statement of faith saying uh, marriage is between a man and a woman and sex belongs in that context alone. Um, and then also to be palatable enough for their broader, cons- more conservative constituents. So it was a bit of an impossible role to step into. Uh, but be- I-, I took it because I thought this is a really cool opportunity to work with students. Like these these students are amazing. The queer students and, and straight students. Like there's it, Christian evangelical colleges are such an interesting place right now. And then also I assume that the the college the administration hired a gay an openly gay christian because they wanted to have an openly gay christian on staff and it wasn't until i got there that i realized uh they they were much more concerned with their sort of managing their image and pleasing sort of sort of like placating their constituents than they were um, helping vulnerable students when it came down to it. Yeah, because one one of the things that you mentioned, uh, one of the stories that you tell in the book is is about some of the kids kind of uh, um, getting gathering together just to talk simply about you know uh, kind of rights and and kind of leveling the playing ground. And it wasn't even uh, as you put out as you mentioned in the story, it wasn't even a situation like the university kind of feared initially where, you know, they're going to debate the merits of whether or not it was right or wrong. It was really like, hey, can we all be treated the same? Uh, it seems, that seems reasonable, you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting because when I started the job, so many people in the administration were like, oh, these these gay activist students are causing a ruckus on the internet and they're trying to secretly, you know, hold these meetings on campus to do this underground gay straight alliance and over time. And at first I believed them. Like I still had this tendency to just trust the people with power, but over time I saw like, gosh, these students are so earnest and they're so, they were, they were so kind hearted and compassionate and they were really just trying to carve out space to be themselves and to make it a little bit safer for, for other queer people on campus and to educate their peers a little bit on just like basic kindness and respect toward their queer classmates. Like it was, it was very, it wasn't even like they didn't even get into things about like theological debates around marriage or sexual ethics. And I, I think like, I don't even know, you know, looking back, like why was there so much like resistance from the administration, I think there was just so much fear. Like, for whatever reason, evangelicals seem to have so much fear around LGBTQ people. And I I will, ne- I will never understand it. I don't know if it's just a sort of, like, relic of Jerry Falwell and the moral majority and James Dobson, like, you know, sort of instilling this fear for a couple of decades and our parents like trying to mobilize them to like vote for political, you know, uh, right wing candidates or I, I don't know, but there was such fear toward LGBT people, including me in, in all of those circles, even if they wanted to, to become more inclusive. Yeah. That, that is a really unique aspect, uh, to this whole thing is this idea that, that, um, 
you know, homosexuality has been attached to, to politics in this very strange way, in a way that like, you know, um, heterosexual or heterosexuality is not, or I don't think is a political, you know, is a political issue. And yet, and yet, you know, gay marriage has become one. It's like, regardless of where you stand on that issue, it's like, why is that your problem if you're straight? You know, like, yeah. you know, why is two other people of the same gender getting married an issue for you? You know, it's very strange. Yeah, it's super, it's super weird. So talk a little bit about, um, so you're, so you're at Wheaton College and then uh, obviously you, you left Wheaton College. And, but at the time you're at Wheaton College, you, you kind of found this sort of, uh, I don't want to call it middle ground, but you know, you, you acknowledge the fact that you were gay, but, but we're living a celibate lifestyle. And, and so uh, has that changed? Did that, did that progression uh, continue? I realized after a year or two of that path that it was untenable. It was untenable on the one hand because I felt like for for lifelong singleness and celibacy to work, you have to be able to have like, I mean, if it, if if it's possible, you have to have like an extraordinary community. Like you have to have like the church being family and really being there for all those like everyday moments of vulnerability. Um, you know, people to text when our airplane lands, uh, basic things like, like, we're just, our society's just not set up for, for lifelong singleness and celibacy. Uh, In addition to that though, the, you, you know, I found that you can't like selectively shut down. So when I was having to shut down and say no to my basic desire to express love and affection to another woman, I I couldn't just say no to sort of my sexual impulses and longings without also shutting down many of my emotions. And then you start to cut off like and fragment your mind, heart, body, spirit. And over time, I found that it was just I was failing to thrive as a human because we're we're not created to to live that way and that with that sort of compartmentalization and our sexuality affects everything about us. It affects like, um, how we connect with our friends, how we connect with God, how we experience art and beauty. It's just, it's not something that you can like silo off and say bad, 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 no, no, no. And it not affect every part of your life. So I ultimately, came to a place of, of fully affirming and celebrating uh, same-sex relationships for other people because I saw, like, that, 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 that the teaching of, like, the burden of saying, like, you, you must remain single and celibate for your whole entire life. I saw how that weighed down really vulnerable students and how it, it led to, to a lot of, again, like, secret relationships, secret unsafe sex, then repentance, then self-loathing. And I was like, gosh, just like, I think we should just let the queers just like be themselves and love, love people and be in relationships like everyone else. Um, And then through sort of coming to that for other people, I was eventually able to like extend that to myself as well. Should this new song loosen Despite what I've been told Should I find some closure? Have I no choice but live alone? 
Yeah, it's it's um it takes me back to a conversation I remember I had with one of my friends years ago. And, uh, you know, we got into this kind of debate about, um, you, you know, what, you know, right and wrong and that sort of thing. Uh, and I remember she kept kind of equating and you make mention of this in the book too, and kind of a different, you know, different words, but kind of the similar concept, this idea that, you know, that, uh, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin kind of thing. So it's like, you know, you can, you can be gay. Okay. We can acknowledge the fact that God didn't make a mistake there. You, you know, he made you gay, uh, or she, um, but you can't, you can't have a relationship. You can't experience love. You can't, you know, have your own family. You can't do all these other things that someone who was born straight can do, which a kind of makes God out to be kind of a jerk, right? <laughs> it's like, Oh, well, so God, you just randomly, I hit the lottery because I'm a straight white guy. Like that doesn't seem right. You know, what did I do to deserve that kind of thing? So it opens up that whole, uh, chain of questions, but, but she, you know, they, I remember she also kind of equated it to almost like, well, some people are born without a leg and I'm like, you can't seriously be, 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 you know, arguing that those two things are even remotely the same, you know? Um, so it's just kind of interesting that, that as much as we've kind of progressed, you know, there's still this kind of sticking point where it's like, okay, we used to think that, well, it was a choice. Like, well, when did you choose to be straight? But now we've kind of moved past that, but we're still kind of stuck on, well, it's still, it's still some sort of sin, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I, I think for me, I kind of look back at, and we can argue, you know, the Bible verses all day long. And I can, I can argue that that's not what it says. And somebody else can argue that it is what it says, but ultimately, you know, in my eyes, shouldn't we be referring back to the teachings of Jesus who, first of all, had very little to say about it. <laughs> and second of all, had a lot to say about loving one another. Yeah. And to your point, I think like I did find that the goalpost was always moving. It was like, I, I got to a point where I was like, I think these people just are kind of disgusted by gay people and that this is more about cultural prejudice than sincerely held beliefs. Even if they don't know that it's just, I I don't know that they can, that they can differentiate between these two. And it's just interesting, like which parts of the Bible people choose to really double down on because like, you know, Paul in first Corinthians tells women not to be silent in the church and to wear head covering, you know, at, at, uh, when they, when they go to worship and that's in the new Testament, that's the apostle Paul. That's not, we're not talking like, um, Leviticus, Leviticus or something. So I think like there, yeah, we could pick apart the Bible all day and why various, there's over 90,000 denominations in the United States alone, because people don't agree about like what these, what these words mean for us 2000 years later in a totally different context. But I think, like, it's actually not that hard to love. It's really not that complicated to look at somebody and say, what's leading to flourishing? What's leading to health? What allows them to truly thrive and to uh, be fully alive in the way that God intended? And then to listen to them and believe them when they tell us what that is. It's not that hard. It's not that complicated. So I think, um, you know, my encouragement for for people that are in that place feeling torn is to just take a step back and to like use a, use a little common sense. Like there's a lot of denominations that will take into account scripture. Yes. But also 
history and also science and also um, just general wisdom. And I think that that we, you know, evangelicals could stand to just like take a step back and, and bring a little wisdom to to this conversation um, and get out of the weeds of sort of the the, the Bible verses. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we and we could do a whole separate podcast on on this whole idea of inerrancy and um, all the problems that come with uh, kind of dying on that hill. But um, <laughs> what um, what advice would you have for young people out there who uh, who are, um, I guess, you know, questioning their sexuality and kind of going through that? Because my biggest takeaway, you know, I'm I'm the father of a young girl and. Um, you know, in reading your story, I thought, you know, what would I do uh, if my daughter came to me and said, I think I'm gay? And I think the answer is pretty easy. You know, I, I would say, so that's great. You know, I love you. So, you know, not a big deal. Right. So, like, you know, what would you say so, to to young people out there who are, are kind of you know going through a rough time with that and um, and, and how and how to avoid, I guess, some of the the traumatic kind of um things that, that, you know, that you went through and that some of the other people, you know, that, uh, you recount the story went through as well. So first I love you. What your answer would be to your daughter. That's really precious and adorable. And it warms my heart all the way up. Um, you know, I would say, first of all, like young people know, like you are the best judge of whether or not it's safe for you to come out and share this news with the people around you. And I would follow your instincts on that because I think there can be such a so so much pressure to sort of like come out and tell everybody and announce it. But, you know, I know I know several people who are currently involved at Living Hope that are like maybe 22, 23, and they're trying to get out. But they came out when they were 16 or 17, just like me. Their parents sent them there. And then they ended up sort of on the Christian college track where they were sort of like, you know, taking this path the whole way. And it's just way harder than if you wait until you're at college or in a safer place with a little more stability to be able to come out. So first, just know that you don't you don't have to come out now. And if and at the same time, like if you can tell that you have uh, people around you like John who are going to respond with that kind of like loving kindness. And I think you'll probably know um, then then share. And it's OK, like to uh, be in a process like this doesn't have to mean you, this doesn't mean anything different. Like you still wake up and like go to school tomorrow, or I guess it's summer, like watch TV tomorrow and kick it with your friends. And you don't have to like start wearing rainbows and like, you know, change your pronouns. Like you can just kind of feel your way along. And I think like there is, you know, I will say that the, the queer community is such a beautiful, beautiful community. I love how we do chosen family. I love how, because of the the sense of loss we've we've often felt, the way that we commit to one another, and even if we like go through breakups or divorces or whatever it may be, like we're family for life. And there's so many beautiful, there's so much creativity in the queer community, and such interesting, thoughtful, such interesting, thoughtful people and ideas and ways of expressing ourselves. And so I would just say, like, there there is like. It's a it's a beautiful thing and and that 
I would tell those those young queer people and old queer people like that you're a gift. Um, you're you're a gift to your churches, even if they don't know that and see that. You're a gift to your friends. Uh, you're a gift to your families because by nature of being you, you're showing um, parts of God and bringing like sort of um, bringing to life ways of being that are so desperately needed in our in our society and in our broader communities um, that people just don't know and don't really have an imagination for until until they see you. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. Um, I just want to leave you this this last opportunity to kind of uh, tell people what what is your hope for the book and and uh, what what are some last thoughts that you have maybe? Well, you, one hope is uh, that people in that current situation will feel a little less alone and be able to catch a vision for a positive future uh, where they can where they, they can really thrive. And I want people to know that that Living Hope, the organization I write about, the conversion therapy group, is still alive and thriving. And Ricky Shalette, the executive director, is speaking in mega churches to tens of thousands of people, uh, places like the Village Church and trendy evangelical churches where like my brothers go and um, these churches are excommunicating people who come out as gay. And it's like, this is not a thing of the past just because, you know, Bank of America has rainbows up in June. So I want people to know that like in your, especially if you're in faith communities, it's really urgent that you make it known that you're a safe and supportive person for queer people in your community. And also that you challenge your, your leaders and um, make it, make it clear, uh, tell them to make it clear, like where they stand on this and, and challenge them to really rethink their views. If they are teaching like harmful, uh, harmful theology around this. Um, and then I would also say that, I, you know, I do hope that this book can be an invitation to to healing. I think like, you know, so many straight folks who have gone through similar processes of deconstruction, losing their faith and just feeling like the ground was like pulled out from under them uh, because it's like this sort of like the scaffolding that like held our lives together uh, comes crumbling down and there you're just you know you feel like you're in a free fall and i i have found that through that process of of losing a certain kind of religion and going through the gutting process of sort of like rebuilding and reimagining and moving into more of an expansive faith and faith communities uh, that it's been it's been really healing, and there's been something there's been something really beautiful about also still finding a way into faith that leads to more generosity and offers capacities for forgiveness, and to still really feel like I can have a relationship with God and I can be a part of a, a really redemptive story in the world. Like it's just I, I hope that people sort of going through any of those processes will feel a sense of like hope and a little bit less alone and the possibility for, for healing and wholeness. I love that. I I think that's where we have to end it. That's beautiful. And um, I I just appreciate you coming on. I love the work that you're doing. This book is absolutely, uh, you know, it's, it's, 
you know, heartbreaking in, in some parts, but I think, uh, you know, I just want to say thank you for being brave enough to tell your story because I think the, the, the amount of good it's going to do is just, you know, infinite. So thank you. Thank you so much, John. It was really, really great chatting with you. I really appreciate it. The curb descends to the street We're 50 men at least We're stopped by a flashing hand And slurring their speech Pedestrians and cops Gladly shrug them off For every man is safe If he's white or he's straight Pardon sin makes one man grin And the rest of us pick up the pieces up the pieces The bros are talking shit about the government The half-baked thoughts of a desperate prince Raising your glass to clear your conscience You said what you said walks free By the time the empty palm of the henchman's hand collapsed The pimp eclipsed the ceiling fan I'm coming back And that's just the time Started high.
Time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.